This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 59 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been, and probably where you never want to go. On the track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. I was just uh, blown away by what you were doing uh, with the bandages and the dressings. I think you were a fellow podcaster, is that right? On occasion, I mean, I really am a hobby podcaster and uh, occasionally interview people who are uh, doing a military book. I guess if Joe Rogan's at one end of the scale, I'm very much at the other. (laughs) That's the voice this week of my guest, Will Blackburn. He's the business development manager for Legacy Box Limited. I first got to know about Will through a like on LinkedIn, would you believe? And what Will was doing was unbelievable. He was taking military-grade dressings and medical supplies that have been in the British Army or armies all around the world, and he's collecting them together and bringing them to Ukraine. He has the ability to be able to do this because he works for a company called Legacy Box Limited, who are based around the world, and he currently lives in Poland with his wife. So he is in a great position to be able to take supplies across the border to Ukraine in a timely manner. What he wants you to do is help him with this modern-day Dunkirk and help save lives in Ukraine. I started by asking Will, where did he get that great surname of Blackburn? It was my grandfather's name, but also the, the number of Will Blackburns that are actually around and about, it's, it's quite interesting. It's uh, a while back, a mate of mine, um, he did a thing, I think it all came, there was a comedian a few years back who, who did a, what was the guy's name? They've got me now. But anyway, he did a thing where he looked up everyone who had his name on the internet and discovered that actually there were loads of people with his name. And uh, I did the same a while back and discovered all sorts of interesting characters, one of whom, um, my parents live in Gloucestershire, and um, I think down the road in um, North Leach, there's, a, there's an old prison um, that was built by William Blackburn. And uh, apparently in the 18th century, William Blackburn was the go-to prison builder, certainly in the southwest of England. Wow. Um, so <laughs> I don't think there's any relation. but <laughs> <laughs> That's a claim to fame. Well, North Leach, I haven't been to North Leach for years because I'm obviously based over here in Canada now, and that's where I live. But yeah, funny enough, Gloucestershire was my old stomping ground. Of course. Uh, Wiltshire and Gloucestershire. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, well, listen, we'll talk a little bit about family later on. I always like to leave that halfway through the programme and get into the soft <laughs> underbelly of Will Blackburn. We'll definitely follow up on that. But here's the thing, right? Um, we met in a kind of, well, not in an unusual way. We're, we got kind of um, linked up on LinkedIn, which was quite interesting. But what I was impressed with is what you're doing at the moment. And if you tell the listeners a little bit where you are and what you're up to. Right. I'm currently, I say currently, been in Poland for about six years, mainly for family reasons we'll go into later, but have been involved in a number of startups, um, one of which, Legacy Box, is, is one that myself and a number of colleagues have put together in terms of a piece of software which deals with legacy applications. What we find, certainly in the world of engineering and, and heavy industry, is that although people like to work with the latest software, and the latest plant, but very often um, for reasons of e- economics more than anything else, 
they have to hang on to that piece of heavy metal, heavy machinery for the foreseeable future. And often what that means is that the software that runs that piece of machinery is, uh, shall we say, not Windows 10. Um, and our little bit of magic, Legacy Box, is a product which allows people to take very old applications, in some cases, even DOS-based applications, for those who follow the world of software. Remember it well, remember it well. <laughs> um, there's a lot of DOS around still, actually, but oh, yes, is. no names, no pack drill. Um, take that software, place it into Legacy Box, and without packaging, uh, people can put that on a Windows 10 device or operate that from a virtual environment. and effectively keep that ancient software going and run it from you know a, a new laptop or, or new device it sounds too good to be true for some people but that's what we do and uh, um, it enables people really just to keep old machinery going economically it's great for them particularly in the current climate post-covid where there isn't the capex and expenditure that they used to be, it's enabling people to keep machines going that otherwise they'd have to spend millions to replace. You know, that is phenomenal what you're doing because uh, that's always been the bane of most, not necessarily developers' lives, but people, end users' lives, that suddenly, yeah, they've got this great machinery, but the firmware and the software, or the, especially the software, is really not supported anymore. And what you're really saying is you're rejuvenating that software in some way to sort of show that it can still be used. And what do you do? Is it, it, how do you go about it? Can I ask the kind of geeky questions about how you work with the interface and how you manage to get it to talk to, you know, Windows 10 and even Mac, I suppose, you know, books and things like that. How do you do it? It's mainly Windows. It's really is as, as long as people have the original install media for that application, be it DOS or XP or Windows 7 or whatever, as long as they have install media, they can install it within Legacy Box with all the runtimes and the relevant information the software needs and publish that to Windows 10 and away they go. And for those people who are running multiple desktops, and I hope I'm not getting too geeky here, but for people who are no, carry on. running multiple endpoints, they can push out Legacy Box as a, effectively as a Windows 10 application out through things like SCCM, to multiple devices. We did that with a with a rail company recently who had 500 engineers who needed various legacy applications and able to use Legacy Box to do that. Occasionally, we find an organization will have quite a critical bit of software. Some point fairly early on in the project, they will say, um, yeah, we've got install media for this, this, and this. We don't actually have the install media for this particular bit of mission-critical software. Right. Um, what we're able to do then is take what's called a ghost image from an existing machine and then take the media from that and, and then put that into Legacy Box and work the magic that way. That's usually a bit more work. For example, often we send out a, a trial of Legacy Box uh, as a piece of software. Uh, the end user will take it and within... Two to three hours, they've solved their problem. It's it's actually not it's not that difficult to deploy. And I know that if any of our developers are listening, they always use me as the as the sort of guinea pig for testing because I am the least technical person in our company by a country <laughs> mile. I am not that technical. And um, if I can do it, that's the benchmark for anyone can do it. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that. Director of business development for some software. And you like to say, you're the least techie sort of guy. But that's good, though, isn't it? Because 
you really understand where the customer's coming from. I mean, they have that steep learning curve initially to get on board. But so, so if somebody came to you and say they had a piece of, um, I don't know, CNC software from the 80s, DOS-based, you know, good old black and white screen as we remember it well, um, and they wanted to sort of make sure that they could keep the CNC machine going, um, what would be the process? How would you sort of map that out? Normally, um, we have sort of technical demo of Legacy Box first of all, sort of scoping out what it what it can and cannot do. Most of what we deal with tends to be either XP or Windows 7. So in many ways, it's relatively straightforward software-wise, although when you do look at XP and Windows 7, it starts to look old. But yeah. as you say, when you start going back to green screen and uh, those good old days, that tends to be more of a consultative approach because there's often a whole range of things that sit around that application that we may or may not be able to deal with straight away. That that process can take a, a little bit of time and involve uh, what we call professional services, which is sort of ascertaining where something sits, what the risks are, um, and then how best to, to migrate that application to a, a more modern format. And that can often be quite an interesting process because sometimes you find that these these very, very old systems are propping up um, some fairly fundamental uh, aspects of an organization. So the, the what, when, how has to be quite carefully put together, but can be done. We have a, um, colleagues in the States and there was a particular application that was from 1994 that we were working with. And the guy I was speaking to in the States shortly afterwards when we actually had the their software or an iteration of their software to look at. He said, how do I navigate this exactly? And I, I said, well, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, um, clearly there's no way of using a mouse to navigate the software. Oh, right, yes. And I said, ah, I said, you need to use the F keys. And we went through a whole series of, of commands. So, you know, uh, F1 to F5 and moving around, the, the, the cursor that way around, around the software. Right, got you. You won't remember this sort of software. And he, he said, this software was was written three years before I was born. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and it was that instance, it was, it was very good software. Often the market tells people, oh, you must have the latest this, you must have the latest that. If it's over a year old, it's old and it's, it's letting you down. And I think... You know, business to consumer, that's probably true. People like websites that are very WYSIWYG and have all sorts of gimmicks on them. But in heavy industry or, or industries where it's a lot of inputs and outputs, often the very old software was, was very well put together. And as many people have said to me, when you look at the software, and sometimes even we pull a face saying, oh, my goodness, this is really old. As someone said to me once, you know, do you do any DIY at home? And I thought, where on earth is this conversation going? And he said, yeah, well, look, yeah. I'll explain to you. He said, do you have a hammer at home? I said, yeah. And he said, how often do you use that hammer? Actually, probably only about once, once or twice a year. He goes, exactly. So when you need to use a hammer, do you go out and buy a new hammer? No. And he says, how old is that hammer you're using? And I said, do you know what? My dad gave it to me, and it's probably about 50, 60 years old. He goes, that's my point about the software we use. We are not trying to sell trainers to people. We are trying to run this lathe 
with these inputs, these outputs, and this software works works like a treat. And that's the world we're in. It's a it's fascinating to be in. And and actually, once we've taken the software and delivered it to a, a modern device, very often they'll turn around and say, "Job, jobbed." Until until this lathe or engine or pump fails, we will just keep this running. And, and that's fantastic. I love that legacy stuff. You know, I love the fact that you just, you know, explained that often is not this great software is written really well. It's written for the application it was intended for and they've covered all the bases, you know, so why change it? And I love that. The fact that you're preserving that and then still giving it more life, you know, as long as the machine keeps working, it's going to continue to run the software, which is wonderful. So tell me a little bit about the history of, of how Legacy Box came about then. I mean, was it because there was a practical problem and somebody was an engineer and he said, I've got to just figure this out. So what, what's the background to it? The background is, is an interesting one. It's a, some colleagues of mine um, who have been involved in, in dealing with legacy applications, one in particular in the automotive industry. As I've mentioned before, in any heavy industry, the, there is this understanding there's a lot of legacy around and what to do about it and traditionally packaging or software packaging as it's called had been a solution now there's a lot of packaging around it tends to be quite expensive and not always guaranteed there are some applications that just cannot be packaged for whatever reason my colleague and another mate of his just sat down and thought what can we develop that will enable people to to effectively take their legacy applications, publish them securely to Windows 10, so they're nicely wrapped up within Windows 10 security, and allow them to carry on working without necessarily forking out for often quite expensive packaging, and often with no guarantees that, that it will that it will work. And I'd been involved in, in various uh, startups and sales, and I knew these guys, and they approached me and said, look, Will, you've got loads of contacts in all sorts of industries and sorts of areas. Let's see if we can get this going. You know, started off as all startups do, a little bit wobbly, a little bit where does it go? We, we knew there was a market out there because we knew people had legacy. They were struggling to move to Windows 10. We were very lucky to, to stumble across, as often is the case, people we'd worked with before in, in other iterations. And they had a um, an opportunity with a railway company, Govia Trains. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pretty much from there on in, they started testing Legacy Box. This also was exactly the same time as COVID. And I remember that, that things that would have probably been tested in about 10, 10 minutes were taking about 10 days, simply because people had to go to an area that was where they were on their own with the right train to do the right sort of testing. That was quite frustrating, but pretty rapidly we, we, we proved that we were the solution that they needed. From there on in, we sort of, as with all these things, it starts to grow. Somebody talks to somebody else. Uh, we introduce ourselves to someone else and little by little we, we've, we've grown over the last couple of years. What about your kind of background, though? So you alluded a little bit that you had lots of contacts and looking through your LinkedIn, I mean, you're a little bit like me, you know, I'm an army brat, ex-army brat. You know, there's a military background there. And is there a military background to your sort of story of your business life? Yes and no. I mean, my military background, what was, the, it's now called the Army Reserve, but the, the Territorial Army. I joined really after university as, as something to do. And then <laughs> not long after that, things got 
got a little bit different in the world as far as various uh, adventures in the Middle East and other things. And I, I found myself fairly shortly into my territorial army career uh, being mobilised and, and sent to Iraq. Right. Which was an extraordinary experience. Uh, it was it was an extraordinary time as well. I think the territorial army as such hadn't been mobilised at that level really since World War II. It was an extraordinary situation because at that point, the Territorial Army, for many people, was there was, there was clearly military training and clearly we had to meet all the military standards. But in terms of actual rubber meeting the road, it was always a, a really almost a Cold War mindset. And then suddenly 2003 and the post 9-11 world, people were being called up, often because they had a particular set of skills, but often because the regular army just needed uh, people to to backfill and and also to to serve with various units. So it was a it was an interesting time to 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 be part of the territorial army and to to see all that mobilization going on. And then yes of course Iraq itself was uh was an extraordinary experience. And what was your kind of specialist skill or role within the the military? Was it just a straightforward infantry role or did you get into logistics? You know, what was your niche effectively? Well it's a, it's an interesting one. Um I started off with the London Regiment, which is at that stage was was light infantry, but mainly because of work and convenience of of travel, um, I transferred to the uh, the military police. Oh, mainly because it was a, a I think it was at that stage it was about a five minute walk from um, my house, and it was very it's much easier than all around to to attend. It, it, in a way, although probably former military police colleagues listen to this, it was just doing the TA thing rather than necessarily military police. And certainly when I deployed to Iraq, I'd not actually been police trained. So when we deployed, myself and a number of other um, uh, TA soldiers, we, we although we were under and badged under military police, um, what we did was force protection in, in, in what was then called a rover group, which were two snatch Land Rovers driving around Basra. I suppose it would you call it as a sort of semi-infantry role, clearly not as um, you know full infantry role, but we were providing force protection for people who needed to get around Basra, basically. Very interesting. Actually, it kind of reminiscent of my father's experience in uh, in Aden in the sixties when he was with the Cameroonians, and the, you know they had to get into you know Aden City or you know, downtown Aden. Very similar circumstances, you know, quick in, quick out, that type of thing. So um, what did that kind of legacy of, or that experience, I suppose, um, give you when you came back to the UK? Was it was it useful in any way or did it springboard you into a different career? Um, one of the things it was very useful for was was giving things a little bit of a, a, a context. Anyone who, who moves or is suddenly finds themselves in a very extreme environment. I remember many times in Iraq thinking, I will never fuss about X or Y or Z again. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure I've always stuck to that, but I think business-wise, it, it, it made me realise a, a number of things. One was that um, certainly it's great to work for a corporation. I've really enjoyed working for corporations, and I think it's a, you, you get all sorts of great experience and contacts from that. But also I think you know, working in a smaller team and working with people very closely. It's a, it's a, whatever you're doing, it's a, it's a very rewarding and happy place to work. If people ask about Iraq, very fond memories of just working with, with really good people. Obviously the army is not a small team, but the work we were doing, it was just eight of us. 
and uh, you know we live cheek by jowl and it was it, it it felt in a weird sort of way almost like a military startup you know we were just eight of us yeah it was very early days in iraq just sort of finding our way and surviving and i think that kind of mindset i think has, has stood me very well interestingly enough a lot of the guys who in rover group um have gone on to do startups and run their own businesses and have done very well. Whether it's all derivative of Rover Group, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm a lot of a lot of it must be must be derivative of that experience. Yeah, and I think the the thing I find just even being an army brat is that it makes you very quick to pivot. You can pivot very fluidly in many ways. You can adapt to situations very very quickly. You're resourceful. You know, you find a way forward to get the job done. Yes. And I think that's maybe what, what you're saying is from the, the small group that you had. And I love that thing, the military kind of entrepreneurship almost, isn't it? You know, we've got to get the job done. How do we organize ourselves, get it done and get out? It does really give you the skills for life. But what were the, the hardest skills, do you think, of, of learning and coming back into Civvy Street to maybe adapt to some of the other roles that you did? Because you've done a variety of roles over the years, haven't you? I have, yes. The experiences in the army and the way in which certain things are done and work, I think stood me in very good stead for dealing, particularly in a sales role with, with public sector. In fact, only this afternoon talking with a colleague about this very thing that my colleague was getting, you'll know exactly who he is if he's listening to this, was getting quite frustrated uh, with the pace in which public sector moves at. And I was explaining to him why that is. There is a logic behind it not least accountability. And I think certainly whether it's the army or a local authority um, or any form of public body, there, there is actually a very similar way of doing things and a pace to certain things. And um, it, it frustrates some people, but, but I understand it. And I think the military was very, very helpful in, in allowing me to understand that process. Oh, got you. Okay, well, we talked about your business side there and, you know, your kind of background. What was really interesting is that um, it was my brother that liked your post on LinkedIn and you were doing something very unique at the moment and very timely. So I'd love to let people know really what you're sort of championing at the moment and how that is going. So explain that all to us. My wife is Polish and about six years ago, um, just to give a bit of background as to why we're in Poland, about six years ago, um, my wife's grandmother became very ill. And it was actually a time when um, I was doing another startup. And we came over Christmas to see wife's grandmother. And we thought, she needs looking after. I can work from wherever I can in the world. It's a, been working in software. It's one of the luxuries of being able to do that. Let's stay in Poland and make sure that Granny is cared for, and um, you know, start a life here, sort of thing, as you do. <laughs> Absolutely, and, yeah, um, I get it. We're right by the sea on the Baltic coast, so it's a nice place to be. From there, we just worked and, and commuted backwards and forwards to the UK. I mean, one of the jokes about at the time was we had a number of um, people we were working with in Aberdeen. And it was easier for me to fly from Gdansk, where we're based, to Aberdeen than it was for colleagues in the UK to get the train up or drive up. That's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. I mean, I was yeah. I was getting return flights with good old Wizz Air, sometimes for sort of 12 99 and things. 
Um, oh my! Just like you can really go off people now. Just stop rubbing it in because flights are expensive here compared to the UK and Europe. But anyway, sorry, I interrupt you. Carry on. Some of those flights back from Aberdeen. I mean, one again. Sorry, I'm digressing. One of my best memories was um, Friday afternoon, flying out of Aberdeen. The airport clearly is really configured around the oil industry, and there were a lot of oil workers there. And for some reason, I think it was only our flight to Gdansk that was leaving on time, and everyone was piled into the airport and I remember there was a, a stand doing whiskey tasting and I remember thinking just as I got on the plane because um, that's how small Aberdeen Airport is it's, it's pretty much a railway station with a runway absolutely um, yeah I remember thinking I wonder what's going to happen when we, once these oil workers have tasted more whiskey and <laughs> how because they weren't flying home and they were obviously having finished their one month stint on a rig or whatever anyway yes Aberdeen to, to Gdansk you know it was a pretty regular route for me and and in the summertime sometimes it wouldn't even get dark you know you'd leave at 11 o'clock 12 o'clock at night from Aberdeen and um you know it was just getting almost just getting light when you landed in Gdansk because of the you guess you're flying that much further north so yeah good Good memories of that, but been living in Poland for six, nearly seven years now. And over the years, one became perhaps much more aware than people living in Western Europe of just the sort of things that were happening um, in Eastern Europe, particularly the war in, in Ukraine in Donbass at the time in 2014, moving right through to well, clearly present day. And, and it's, you know, now it's extreme war. But also where we are is very close to the Russian um, exclave of, of Kaliningrad. As I sit and talk to you now, I think I'm only 19.2 miles away from Russia. Wow. So um, it, it's all all very close. And um, yeah, I just woke up that morning, which is only a month ago on the 24th of February. And my wife was saying they've done it. The Russians have invaded Ukraine. And probably like a lot of people, I thought, well, they've obviously gone into the Donbass. And then we put on the old BBC and no, they were they were attacking from from all angles. And very rapidly, as we all saw, uh, it went from being, you know, terrible news to being just unbelievably serious in all aspects, not not least with the refugee crisis. And now, if I go for my lunchtime walk here, the, the park, the seafront, everywhere is full of lots of ladies with their children from Ukraine. Um, is quite distressing because you can see that they, yeah, they've they've got out, they've survived, and now they're facing a, a very uncertain future in a country that they do share quite a bit of culture with, and it's. In many ways, a similar language. Not, it's not too difficult for them to make themselves understood. But it's that whole thing of you can just see that they a month ago they had all sorts of other plans in life, and now what they're facing is almost a literal nightmare. Poland has really changed in the last month. Um, it's changed how people people are here, how people feel, often for the positive. And I was very aware of we have a beach bar we always go to, and the guy who runs it. He's just one of those people that, that just gets stuck into helping and what have you. And I noticed very shortly after the 24th of February, he was saying, look, we've got to help 
I've known these Ukrainian people who, you know, are organizing food runs and what have you. Got in touch with him through good old Facebook. I think that evening we went down to Selgros, which is it's what they call a cash and carry, or we'd have known as cash and carry in the UK back in the days. I don't know what you call them in Canada, but... Uh, Costco. I think it's Costco now. Costco. We just had a list of dry food, pasta, rice, you name it, um, and just buying as much as we could and loading up the car. The thing that I found absolutely amazing and very inspiring was that um, when we turned up at Costco, we sort of, you know, very blinkered thinking, right, we need to get this, this and this. We suddenly were aware that there were about 100 other people who were pretty much buying the same goods as we were and filling up their cars. Um, when we were checking out, the lady was like, this is for Ukraine? We are like, yeah. So, and, that, you know, and the next lot, they were for Ukraine. So the, the Polish people and other people there were really just, just, just impressive what people were buying and, and getting ready to send over. We then met up with the people who were driving it over and literally loaded it in and off it went to Ukraine. Um, I was quite shocked, actually, because, you know, you sort of, although we're right next door to Ukraine and Poland, you, you somehow you sort of feel, oh, it will be handed over to someone else who will then drive it over. But no, these people were, were going over. Incredible. Yeah. And um, I said to them, you know, oh, gosh, you, you've got to be so careful. And, and they said, look, look, Will, we're driving home. You know, it's, we're, we're not, I know what you're saying, Will, but, but, and it is difficult and dangerous, but, you know, we're happy to be going home and dropping the food off with people that we know. And I got, I don't know, I got, I, I was very touched by that because I thought, yeah, I, I'd sort of, as we often do with war zones, you sort of turn it into a kind of a sort of box of, of, you know, something that's over there. Yeah. And I was very touched because it, it made it very real, but also, and I don't mean this the wrong way. It also, it, it sort of, de-nightmarified it if that's a word because you sort of thought right these are people who are driving food back to their home you know if, if we were i don't know if we were say in birmingham and we said let's let's drive some food down to, to devices yeah people wouldn't go are you are you going to devices are you going to be okay in your mind you'd be thinking no i'm just just driving some food home notwithstanding the dangers Halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Will Blackburn of Legacy Box Limited. Next, I wanted to ask Will, what are some of the more important things that people are needing in Ukraine? And how did he conclude that the medical supplies of the military type were the most important? It's, it's funny because you, you sort of, um, you, you realise that, that things like food and it sounds crazy, isn't it? But, but flavoured food, you know, can make a real difference. It's 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 these things that that literally fuel people. And you know, you you do as always with these things. You 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 realise you take things for granted, or sorry, not you. One takes things for granted. Oh, I get it. And you you, you know, suddenly just all this kilos of pasta and rice. You think, yeah, that that'll keep them going for a little while, and and then more things are brought over. And then what happened was they were going pretty much on shuttle runs and it started off very much as food and it still is food now. And then it came back or they came back saying, no, we need, we need medical kit. We need, we need medical supplies. 
And a lot of people quite rightly, you know, they, they went down to their equivalent of boots and what have you and were buying bandages and all sorts of things. But I suddenly realised, you know, what they, what they really need is, is what I guess what you call military medical kit. Yeah. That, of course, is harder to come by because, you know, it tends to be only the emergency services that have them and what have you. And people were saying, you know, where can we get it from? And, and I, I suddenly thought, you know what? I think I've got some old first field dressings that I was issued when I went to Iraq, tucked away somewhere. And I went down, I went down into the cellar, as you do. Of course, we've moved a lot of stuff over from the UK, and it's that whole thing of, oh, gosh, it's that box at the back. I know exactly where it is. I've got many of those. And I started sort of... <laughs> <laughs> we all do it, and, and you, you suddenly... Yeah you suddenly think half the stuff here that's boxed up, do we really need it? But anyway, I got to that box at the back and I managed to lift it over and I'm, I'm thinking I need to do a bit more training because, you know, I'm nearly 52 <laughs> and the old back was twinging and I was thinking I'm going to fall over and we found months later in the cellar. Um, <laughs> managed to lift the box of kit. Um, sure enough, it's, it's funny how the memory works. I had an old day sack. And, you know, it was a, it's pretty, pretty dusty, whatever. But I knew I had a funny feeling that tucked away in the top zippy pocket were the two first field dressings. And sure enough, there they were um, in pretty good condition. And I thought, right. And then I thought, having talked to a load of, of old people I'd served with, both regular people and TA, I know a lot of people. And, and you'll know this as well from your own experience. A lot of people being in the army tend to hang on to funny bits of kit for reasons they're not quite sure about. But they do, they <laughs> do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, I wonder how many other people have got a couple of first field dressings or, or a tourniquet or something tucked away that they they want to get rid of or at least don't use. Because I know my wife's always saying, look, you never use any of this stuff. Chuck it out. Um, and I thought, hang on, there must be people there. So as one does with social media, took a photo of first field dressing, stuck it on LinkedIn, and I thought I'd see what happens. And, you know, did the usual thing of go away, have a cup of coffee. And then, right. lo and behold, the lights start coming in. And then I'm getting DMs saying, yeah, I've got a load of, of first field dressings. I've also got some Celox, which is the... Uh, blood coagulant um oh yeah yeah i've got this i've got that can i send it to you and i thought right let's see if we can sort of coordinate something so i made the mistake initially of saying people to post it over to poland of course forgetting that polish post bless them is not brilliant and also of course polish customs are completely taken up with dealing with <laughs> But millions of people that come into Poland. So a couple of the first packages are still sat with Polish customs. I believe they'll be uh, spat out at some stage in the next few days. So what I did was we have a place in London that's rented out by total coincidence to, to a couple guys Polish and, and she's Ukrainian. Oh, my. And uh, so, of course, I said to them, look, this is what we're doing. She was, of course, completely on board with it. And said, no, absolutely. And <laughs> I then told people by DM, look, send your medical kit to this address. And I think 
so within a few days, <laughs> I was getting photos from um, the people renting our flat in London, sort of saying, uh, this has turned up, that's turned up. And so we're going over back to UK on Friday to sort through the all of the medical kit that's been sent over. And I was contacted by somebody from um, a cadet unit who found a drawer full of all sorts of medical kit that they're boxing up and, and sending to us. Wow. Other people, it's, it's as far away as, uh, as Israel. Really? Gosh. Sending stuff. So I mean, <laughs> when we get to the flat, I'm hoping that our uh, tenants have actually got space to live. Um, I'm just I'm just wondering if you're going to get in the door or not. But you know, this is this is really interesting. And again, um, you know, we'll give some links at the end as well for people to be able to sort of continue this for you. I, I imagine you have the desire to get as much as you can. And you'll figure out the logistics. But yeah, you know, it's uh, it's it's amazing just by posting that. And that was probably last what Wednesday or Thursday, I think it was. It's not even a week. It was, um, yeah. It's not even a week, isn't it? It was a yeah. week last Thursday. Yeah, that's right. So we were recording this on Wednesday, the 23rd of March. So yeah, literally it was sort of, um, yeah, about the 17th or 18th of March. That's and right. what you're saying is you've got at least a car full, if not a van full of stuff, probably by the sounds of things. It, it, it's remarkable. And and not just bandages as well. I, I, I realised um, since I served, I think battlefield medicine had has improved immeasurably, particularly for the people that served on uh, in the later stages of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so they've got all sorts of really good little bits of kit, like uh, tourniquets that can be quickly applied. As I say, this quick clot cellox stuff, which is basically a, you know, it looks like a sort of bag of powder and it is a bag of powder and it, it effectively um, can help blood clot really quickly that can stop people bleeding. And people have sort of got all this lying around and, and a bit like me, they probably thought, you know what, why, have I, why am I hanging on to this? Let's just, let's just send it to Will and he can get it out to the guys in Ukraine. We had some photos actually from the, the guys uh, that it's going to. And it's, it's funny, as, a, as with everything, we all, we're obviously seeing lots of Ukrainian soldiers on the media. And when you see Ukrainian soldiers actually sat waiting somewhere and they're the brother of the girl that drove you met who drives the van and it's the it's the teacher that was you know part of her school you know it, it, it suddenly you realize wow this, this is going to people who really need it and you know, ukraine needs generally as much as it can get but also it's 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 going to people that they they know and will immediately get out there it's shocking in many ways because you know it will be a month tomorrow that that ukraine kicked off and or Ukrainians would say, actually, no, it kicked off in 2014. But yeah, I think in terms of the eyes of the rest of the world, it's it's a month tomorrow. I think for all of us, and I know in Canada, of course, with a huge diaspora Ukrainian community, I think it's I think it's Canada may have the biggest Ukrainian diaspora of anywhere in the world. I think I, I'm not sure on that. Yeah, we're we're second or third biggest in the world. Um so there's a lot of support over here for the Ukrainians and you know and we a lot of people wish they could go over physically and help, you know. Um one of the things that I just wanted to clarify and just want to make sure is it still okay to send these dressings or any other medical supplies to the address in London? Is that something you can give out over the air? If you don't mind, I won't give it out over the air just simply because a partly for the tenants that are living there and also just for 
um, security in terms of the, the, the property itself. It's, it's just, if anyone DMs me, I'll happily send them the, the address. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you can give your DM, uh, is it through LinkedIn uh, that you will do it through? Through LinkedIn. If anyone contacts me and then I'll, I can send the address. One thing I am doing though um, on that, in that regard is there's a, another mate of mine who's actually been hugely helpful in just giving a donation. I was quite shocked at his, the monetary donation he made, but I know that he, he used to run a charity and I would quite like to speak to him about formalizing something partly because i think it's this is going to be ongoing for a while sadly but the other thing is for the very reason you described is it's it's great doing the startup thing of using a london address and having the tenant sort through the post but actually if we're going to do it we ought to talk about doing it properly so i'm talking with him about how things can be set up and um, a proper place to receive uh, equipment and that sort of thing and, and what the scope is for them. No, that's fantastic. And we'll get this podcast out probably within the next week or so so that people can then share it and you can certainly share it on LinkedIn. Um, and then hopefully by that time, we'll have another address or somewhere else where you can, you know, basically post that um, at the end of the podcast. Um, I totally understand it because, I mean, you're of my generation. You know, we remember the Blue Peter Appeals on TV. Well, they had to get the logistics of that right because otherwise they were inundated with hundreds of thousands of bottle tops or whatever it was they were collecting that year. You remember it well? I do, and the totalizer flashing at whatever. Do you remember that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, so from my point of view, what I want to make sure, is there anything else that you want people, you know, listeners to be aware of that's really, really important in relation to what's happening in Poland and Ukraine? To my mind, it is that thing of, of keeping the support going. I mean, yesterday we were at a depot um, here in Sopot where we live and again just hugely impressed with the amount of food material that's been turning up from the UK just the support has been incredible but I'm aware that that as these things move on that support can die off not because people don't care as such it's just that you know this is going on well, it's been going on for a month now, but it, who knows how long it'll go on for. And and people just need to keep the support coming through. Yeah, and it's about momentum, isn't it? Because often as not, these things kind of, you know, run out of steam a little bit. And so we have to keep it at front and forefront. It's really, really important. We do. Because no matter what's happening, yeah, you know, you know, although the military are doing what they're doing and we, we have our fingers crossed that they will achieve what they need to achieve, you know, you've got to think about the uh, the civilian population as well. You know, they still have needs and requirements and, you know, people have lost jobs, lost livelihoods, and we need to be there to help. But I want to say one thing. I think it's fantastic what you're doing. And thank you to the Polish people as well. And thank you to the British people, or everybody in Europe that is supporting Ukraine at the moment. It's just unbelievable the amount of support that's coming through. Um Listen, I, I hope you don't mind, and, and it's very relevant what we're talking about, but I, I still want to get to know a little bit about you as well, <laughs> if that's okay. No, that's fine. I think we've left, yeah, we've left 10 minutes or so, maybe 15 minutes to, to sort of delve into your soft underbelly and find out about family. And it was really interesting. We were talking about the, the Blackburn name. So tell us a little bit about your ancestry and, and kind of what you know about where you've come from and, you know, who's influenced you on that journey as well as you've, as you've been growing up? Um, that's, gosh, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, in terms of influence, of course, parents, huge influence, as for a lot of people, the, the, they are the sort of rock that, that really drives you and, and guides you. And 
and sort of set standards and all that sort of thing. And I've been very, very lucky having great parents in that way. Um, family originally from, uh, certainly my father's side of the family, from the north of England and um, from sort of the Lancashire, Manchester area. Um, and very much, certainly from talking about the military before, you know, there's been quite a, a sort of strong background in military service. That was always an influence. I remember as a child, you know, hearing the stories of my grandfather and, and uncles and their involvement in the military and, and going back prior to that. But funnily enough, I nearly pursued a career in the military as a regular thing. I didn't quite get through the RCB for, for um, going for officer training and then sort of lost interest about the age of 19 and went into sort of commerce and, and then <laughs> re re-engage with interest um, uh, around about, uh, yeah, sort of 2000 time with the, with the TA. And one of the things that always made me laugh was at the end of the tour with, with Iraq, it was my platoon commander said, you know, had I ever considered doing, becoming an officer in officer training? I had to sort of say, well, you didn't want me about 15 years ago, but yeah. never mind. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if it's any constellation, it happened to me as well. You know, I kind of was going, you know, went in the engineers and was going to do the officer training. And then, yeah, I kind of went off the boil. <laughs> Girls appeared on the scene and that was it. I was distracted. But it was, of course, very different times. I mean, it was, it was yeah, they were. very different. I mean, of course, you, you would have had a, a real insight into the army life in Germany, which was a whole culture in itself. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt, you know, Germany, Cyprus, Hong Kong, you name it, you know, but the way I look at it is it, um, a very privileged life. I mean, when you actually look back to be able to travel the world in the 60s, 70s and into the 80s as a young person, experience all those different cultures it was phenomenal. And I mean, I, I would I, I would never have given it up for anything, you know, when I look back, you know, Rolling Stones gather no moss, though, it does make you have itchy feet. And you probably find this a little bit with your life. You know, you've, you've done many jobs like I have over the years, um, but you, you, you can beat that experience. It's been phenomenal, you know. I want to ask a couple of things just so, you know, we, we cover all the bases. So immediate family and, and mum, I mean, because was mum, did mum have a career and, and what have you, or was she fair and square looking after the rest of the family and getting you guys on the road, so to speak? She was looking after the, the, the rest of the family, and, and she, but she was involved in the NAC, which I think, if my memory serves me correct, if you listen to this, she'll, she'll correct me, no doubt. It, it, was a, it was a volunteer part of the Home Office, which dealt with... Um, uh, prisoners and prisoners' standards. So they were, you would go in and, and, and visit a prison and make sure that, you know, they were being fed at breakfast time and that, you know, they, they were getting post and, and that sort of thing. And in some ways, it was always interesting because I, I remember some of my, my parents' friends were quite anti that. You know, some people feel that prisoners, you know, shouldn't get any privileges or anything at all. But I, I know that mum always felt that, as Churchill said, you know, that one of the ways you judge a society is by the way you treat your prisoners. Interesting, yeah. I know she always felt that there was always a story behind it. And they usually, as with a lot of things in life, there usually is. And I always remember her telling me the story about uh, somebody she came across in a particular prison who they'd been jailed as, as a minor, what they call Her Majesty's Pleasure. And he'd been involved in a fight outside a pub, hit someone and they died, it died instantly. And it was one of those tragic things of somebody with a very fragile skull. 
when she met him, I think he'd been in jail for something like 15, 20 years because he didn't really have a family to vouch for him. Oh, dear. And I remember I, thinking back, I think that one of the reasons that she told me that story was it was at that age, about sort of 18, 19, when you go out drinking and, you know, your, your mate gets involved in a scrap. And I think she was trying to tell me, you know, be careful because, you know, that sort of thing can end up in, you know, tragedy. And, and sure enough, that poor chap that she met in prison, you know, he'd been in there for, you know, I think it was something like 20 years. I remember it being very shocking. And the fact that because he'd gone from being a juvenile to an adult, something had been missed in the system. And because he hadn't got family vouching for him and all that sort of thing, he'd been a little bit lost. Yeah, almost institutionalised, isn't it? It was a little bit like the mental hospitals. I remember that in the 70s and 80s. You'd get these people that you'd meet and they'd gone in as as young ladies, you know, unfortunately maybe had a baby out of wedlock. Yes. And then they'd suddenly they were in the mental institution for 40 or 50 years. That was their life. And they couldn't exist outside of those institutions. It was heart-rendering, really. Nowadays, they wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be an issue. You know, this is a... No. It's extraordinary how times have changed like that. Absolutely. What about family, the rest of the family? Do you have brothers and sisters who uh, were part of the family? A sister who lives in London. I suppose like everybody at a certain age in the UK, there's a sort of was a bit of a gravitation to, to London. That's always a question, actually, about where we're from, because uh, I was born in, in Cheshire, went to school in Gloucestershire. Most of my adult life, I realised, though, had lived in London. So as as you know from... From uh, from being a mili- in a military family and moving around, you, you probably have an idea of where you're from. Yeah. But when you start describing it to people, they say, "Well, you're not really from anywhere," which is <laughs> it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. It's the oddest experience. Yeah. You know, I can say that I was born in Glasgow, Scotland. Some Scots by birth, but where do I really come from? Well, the longest place I ever lived in was Devizes in Wiltshire for thirty years, or you know that locality. You know, um, so my Wiltshire. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it, as you say, it gives you a sort of freedom um, in, in that, you know, that often and it's that classic thing. If you if you sort of wed yourself to a place, I was talking to someone at Christmas time last Christmas about go, when they went back to their hometown. And, you know, one of the things they love about Christmas Eve is that they can go into the local pub. And they know that Bill will be sat there, that Fred will be sat there, and they'll still be saying the same thing they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the most bizarre thing. I love it. Sort of in some ways we have that, in some ways we don't. Because if you've always been moving around, you, you, you have the ability to drop into that or step away from it. And I kind of agree with you. That's a bit of a luxury, really. It certainly is. It certainly is, for sure. So, OK, let's, um, let's figure out, when you were kind of growing up, though, of course, did you have ambitions? Did you have ideas of what you wanted to do and where you wanted to go in life? My school career, like a lot of people's, it, it, it didn't, it really didn't go as well as it should have done. And I, it's awful because you, as I'm sure a lot of people do, um, you realise when you get to a certain age that if you just sat down and read through those books and done that, you'd have been fine. And now we could, and I'm sorry, I'm lumping you into this. I'm sure you work very hard at school. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But now I think, gosh, I could sit down with this and just just do it and get it done and, and get the qualification. I, I didn't come out with zero qualifications, but I could have done an awful lot better. The 80s was a real time of change, I think, in terms of what people were going to do for work. And 
and how work was going to go. I did my A-levels and, to be honest, messed around for three or four years. And I worked for a guy, um, dear old Phil Dodd, if he's listening, and he just sat me down one day and said, look, you've got to get yourself to university or do something which gives you a better qualification because otherwise I can see this not working out very well for you. You need, you need to sort of re-gear yourself. And so at the age of 24, I uh, went off to university. That was interesting because going before, talking before about applying myself, I found I was able to do the university work and just get it done because I've been working for four or five years and sort of knew that ultimately the only person who suffered if you didn't do the work was yourself. Towards the end of university, I, you know, like a lot of people, plan just to move into, you know, a another large corporation and carry on working. But I remember um, my tutor there saying, you know what, you've you've got to really look at some form of technology. You've got to look at some form of software because that's the way the world is going. And I remember at that stage, the university they they were talking about websites, and we actually had. There was an evening lecture where they introduced, this is what a website looks like. And they're growing in number. There may be as many as 500 now in the world. It really was, you know. Oh, my goodness. That is amazing to hear. It, but it, it, and, it, and, of course, it grew massively. This was sort of uh, mid-90s. But after that, it, it, you know, just as we know, it exploded. But funnily enough, after that meeting with the tutor, I left his office and on the sort of jobs board there was an advertisement for a company called book data who were doing essentially aggregating uh, computerizing data for book retail i thought right well it's my last year at, at uni we're uh, uh, applying for all sorts of jobs with big name companies i'll apply for those guys and applied was asked for an interview got the job and that was my introduction to the world of software really and I suddenly realized that, wow, the university weren't wrong. Everything is really computerizing, that retail is, is, is computerizing, the whole data that sits behind it. And that really was, I suppose, aged, was I when I graduated, 26, 27. Actually, in reality, that's when my sort of proper, I call proper career started. I, I did all sorts of jobs before university and, and they were then they were good jobs in the sense that, you know, I learned from them, worked with good people. And, you know, as I say, dear old Phil Dodd, my sort of last proper boss, inspired me to go to university. It's funny how that just that one conversation with my tutor at, at uni and that notice board with that advertisement for, for book data, um, you know, sets you on a completely different course. But yeah, software's been pretty good to me. Um, no, I've still got to work. I'm not retired yet, but it's not been well, bad. No, that's that's good. I mean, from your point of view, you, you know, thank goodness that Phil Dodd sort of did say that to you and, and you got on the right track. You got on another track, I suppose. Um, that brings it really nicely back to what we were talking about earlier on about your business. So I just want to remind people where they can get a hold of you regarding your actual you know, business, which is Legacy Box Limited. So tell us how we can get a hold of you and what type of customer you're really looking for. Best way to get a hold of us is probably direct email, good old email, will.blackburn at legacybox.co.uk. Really, any industry 
or any business that has um, an application that they need to keep going but will not work on on windows 10 it can be as simple as um, we, we range from companies of four people to companies of tens of thousands of people and often with small businesses it can be as simple as as being able to access old records you know if you have records that you can no longer access because of the media you need or media you needed to look at them you can put that media into legacy box and start looking at old files another one is spreadsheets with old macros you know someone has a spreadsheet they love to use to calculate how many loo rolls they need to buy to make a profit yeah but they suddenly find that when they move to windows 10 that the macros don't work in the in the excel spreadsheet and it's they're really frustrated get legacy box put the old spreadsheet into legacy box and you can use it on your windows 10 device securely and keep it there forever if you want and and just to clarify so that people know it is literally an app or a piece of software that interacts uh, or creates an environment that that you know, the, the older app or the older piece of software can work within and then communicate with Windows 10. That's simplified, I know. Yes. But that's essentially what it will be. Yes, absolutely. And, and funny, other things that really appeal to people, um, RS-232 cables, and a lot of military people know about that, a lot of people in heavy well. industry. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the real USPs, and this is really exciting stuff now for, for some people, not everyone, Um but RS-232 to USB has been a problem for um, a number of people we've worked with. Not necessarily because you can obviously get RS-232 to USB cables, but what Legacy Box allows you to do is to pass through that data securely to the legacy application itself on the device. And this has meant a lot to people, particularly people checking older machinery. So they need to plug into an old train or an old tank or uh, some form of, of fuel pumping device. And it enables them to, to run all those tests, plugging into good old RS-232. Um, that has been you know, a big appeal of, of, um, of Legacy Box, certainly. Oh, that, that's really good to hear because really, you I mean, RS-232 was really the forerunner of USB in many ways, wasn't it? It, it was. was. a way of connecting machines together, you know. Um, I'm so glad you made that uh, or clarified that because that will appeal to a lot of people. But um, And so just finally as well, I mean, I want to just make sure that, you know, one of the main reasons for getting on the program was really to highlight what you're doing in terms of the field dressings and getting some of the medical supplies to where it's really needed in Ukraine. So just remind people how people can reach out to you and, and be able to communicate with you regarding getting those uh, items to you. Now, probably the best thing to do is to find me on LinkedIn so it's Will Blackburn and probably put Legacy Box in the search um, on LinkedIn. And that's the best way of finding me. Send me a connection request and we'll we'll sort something out. Well, well, you know something. Um, I you know, I, I just got one final and I promise it is the, the final question. If if you were in this situation now, you know, and you went back to when you were kind of 18. And with all the knowledge that you've got now and all the knowledge of the world and your experiences through work and, you know, wherever you are now living in Poland, if you met yourself on a bus, what would you tell yourself, your 18-year-old self? I would say just do the study in the evenings. Um, it's it's not that hard. Um, I, I think, and it's, I notice it now with, with friends' kids who are 18, 
1918, and it's probably worse now because of the gaming, because of all the social media and all the devices. I mean, God, if I had if I'd had those, I probably couldn't wouldn't be able to read by now. Probably. Yeah. It, it's it's just just get get your head down and do do that extra bit of work. If that will stand you in good stead. Yeah, and do it while you've got the energy and when you're young. There's no doubt about that because your brain capacity, your energy is there potentially. And uh, it, it, although it's still difficult, it's do it now. Don't do it later on in life. That's what I would say for yes. sure. Or, or, and, but what I would also say is that, that you know, you can, always, you can always turn things around. And I think it's not so bad now. But I know one of the at school, and, and we all probably experienced this, particularly people at school in the 70s and 80s, that it was, it was very much, uh, right, if you don't do this, then your life is over. And some people, that's the stick they need. For other people like me, it was like, no, I don't believe you. And Absolutely. I, I was the same. <laughs> they, they were half right. Funnily enough, we had a school reunion about seven years ago, and a rule of thumb seemed to be that all the worst behaved kids at school have done the best. It, it's the people that, that really told that towed the line that in many ways, you know, they've, they've done okay, but the real sort of, wow, I never thought that they'd do that. It was all the, the kids that had really messed around and, and sort of been a, been a pain in the ass for t-shirts. <laughs> well, you, but the, the point is they, they pushed the boundaries. They were used to sort of pushing and discovering and finding out about things where, you know, when you're com- quite compliant, and I mean, I know I was a fairly compliant sort of student. Uh, it was only when I started to be a bit adventurous and say, you know, son, I am going to interview Ringo Starr or I am going to interview Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits. You know, I, I, I start to push my boundaries and go and be confident. That's when things started to happen. Um, so I totally get what you're saying. Absolutely. Well, I mean, gosh, I should be interviewing now. So you've interviewed, you know, some some big big names there. Well, not quite yet. I've got my application on the email, so <laughs> you know, I'm trying. I always try three times as a salesperson. My background's business development as well, and what have you. And uh, yeah, you always dive in three three times. Oh, actually, I interviewed a guy today, and he said no. He tries three point eight times. I said, well, that's particularly exact. <laughs> But he said, you know, it, that's what he does. He does uh, cold emailing, you know, cold call emailing, which is very successful, apparently. But anyway, I digress. I'm going to need to let you get off and I've got to get off as well. I, you know something? I want to just really, really thank you for what you're doing uh, for the people of Ukraine. And I want to thank your wife as well and the people of Poland for the support they're showing. And, and I mean, the support is right the way throughout Europe. But I think, uh, you know, you're doing something very practical. And that's what I really loved about what you posted on LinkedIn. So... Keep doing it, man. And uh, tell us, you know, you'll need to come back on maybe in six months' time and tell us how it all went. I will indeed. I'd love, love to do that. And thank you so much for having me. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope I've been a good interviewee. It's, it's, it's always that thing, um, uh, being a podcaster myself, that, that um, the strange thing of listening back, because actually you, you realise that what you thought the show was about is not actually what it's about. And I always find that bit of it fascinating as well, as I'm sure, sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I'm sorry, we didn't even cover your kind of podcast. I know you said you were a part-time podcaster or an occasional podcaster, but very briefly, if people want to listen to your podcast, is it still available online? It, it, it is, yes. It's we're called We'll Talk Military. It's, it's available through, I use Anchor software, which is really easy to use. And for part-time, very amateur podcasters like me, I'd recommend it to anyone. And they actually do that. They, they publish it. Obviously, you control the publishing, 
But once you do publish it, they push it out to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the all the big ones um, themselves. And yeah, you get good, you know, you get all the stats on who's listening and who's not listening, and you start thinking, why is someone in Trinidad and Tobago listening to me? It's the bizarrest thing, isn't it? I just found I just found out I'm in number 48 in the podcast charts in New Zealand of all places. And I'm thinking I've never... Well, actually, funny enough, I did interview somebody from New Zealand, but that was only three weeks ago. But prior to that, it was number 48. I think, what? <laughs> you know, it's just weird. It's a fantastic format. And I, I think... Um, I mean, one of the things that, you know, we mentioned Joe Rogan at the beginning. I mean, he, he inspired me to do it. I was on my exercise bike watching a Joe Rogan. And someone said to him, oh, but, you know, you, you podcasting and it's and he, he just I think he got quite uppity, almost saying, look, it's easy to do. What I do is easy. You just do it and see what happens. You don't have to be good, bad or indifferent. You just got to try it. And I thought, you know what? I'll try it. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, thank you. Good old Joe. <laughs> Let, let's just make sure that we uh, will pop that link on there. So it's Will Talk Military, and that's your podcast. It, it is, yes. I can I'll, I can send you the link for, for that for, for from Anchor. Okay, well, that would be absolutely brilliant. Well, listen, you've been inspirational to talk to. I mean, you've been a very great guest. I mean, we could have gone for another hour. I know that for at least, but uh, I've got to dive out and drive a yellow bus here in North America. <laughs> <laughs> I am a school bus driver part-time, so there you are. Great stuff. Well, look, have a have a great because of course it's always about time zones. I keep thinking everyone else is is in evening time now, and of course you're not evening time yet. So have a great no, day. No. I will. <laughs> I mean, it's one fifteen in the afternoon. I'm going to grab a bit of lunch and go and pick the kids up from school. So how about that? Fantastic. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and I'm glad we we got together. And it was so quick. And uh, like I say, thank you for what you're doing, and I wish you the best of luck with everything. And keep us posted. Okay. Will do. Will do. We'll speak soon. Take care, Will. Cheers, David. Thanks again. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Will Blackburn of Legacy Box Limited, keeping Ukraine supplied with much-needed medical supplies. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.